Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. This week on Passion Sunday, the Sunday before Palm Sunday, and two Sundays before Easter, we focus on the coming passion and crucifixion of our Lord. <clears throat> For those of you who have been with us before, or especially the last few weeks, you'll see that something around the church has changed today. Typically, you'd see an array of icons depicting the saints behind those candles. And we've taken the fancier candlesticks down and replaced them with uh, simpler ones. But today, you see that they are covered with a purple veil, as well as the altar cross and the other crucifixes and images around the church. Last night before evening song, uh, that is evening prayer, the, the crucifixes and images were veiled with violet. And traditionally for the next two weeks, the crucifixes and images in the church remain covered during this mini season of the church year called Passion Time. The crucifixes the images of our Lord crucified on the cross stay covered until the end of the celebration of the Lord's Passion on Good Friday. And the rest of the icons stay veiled until the Gloria of the Easter Vigil. The crosses are veiled in part because of St. John's Gospel that we just read, which concludes with, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The icons, the depictions of saints as our church teaches are only meaningful in that they point to Christ. So if Christ is hidden, so then the images of the saints must also be hidden. On Good Friday, we will first unveil the crucifixes to remind us that we are at the nadir of our church year, when on that night we see that God, who was high above everything, has also humbled himself to become man for us and die for us. Ultimately, the consequences of our actions as mankind to save us through his death. In the church, it is a joyous event that we will put the point on when Jesus has truly taken on everything it is at that moment to be, to be human, including death, save sin. And then we'll celebrate the light of the resurrection and the saints that will remain hidden until then will then be unveiled because now Christ has come again and his light illumines them as he illumines all of us. Other actions in the season of Passion Tide accompany this failing to bring attention to it, to emphasize it. For example, we've left out the minor doxology a few times today, may have, may have just thought we forgot, which is the glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, as now, and never shall be, world without end, in certain places of the liturgy. So if you feel a little confused for the next couple of weeks, that's normal. Uh, if it really matters, we'll try to remind you of the special rules for this time of year as best we can, though sometimes they prove challenging even for us who do it every year. But they help keep us mindful of the uniqueness of this time of the church year. So turning to today's message. Two weeks ago, you may recall that we heard the healing of the deaf mute by Jesus, after which the Pharisees accused him of casting out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. 
Jesus then replies with one of his most famous sayings that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? This week on Passion Sunday, the Pharisees have amped up the rhetoric quite a bit. Now they don't just say he's casting out devils by the power of the chief devil, but it culminates in them saying that surely he has a devil himself and then picking up stones to kill him. So how did it reach this point? Let's back up in the story a bit. Today's gospel passage is found at the end of John chapter 8. But we're going to head all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8. If you have your Bibles and you like to follow along generally, you're welcome to. But I'm not going to read. But it might help give you a sense of the structure. And if you return to this chapter this week, as I encourage you to do, it might help you a little bit. So, in the beginning of chapter 8, in the second verse, we learn that Jesus has come to the temple in Jerusalem early this morning to teach. And the first event recounted this day by St. John were that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who has supposedly been caught in the act of adultery. Now, why do I say supposedly? Well, for a few reasons, as you'll see. The first, though, is that the man engaged in adultery is also supposed to be subject to the same punishment. And if they were caught in the act, it seems they should have been able to seize him too. But okay, maybe he got away. The second reason for some skepticism is this is clearly just another dramatic vine that the Jews are creating to test Jesus. Yes, Jewish law prescribed the stoning to death for both the man and the woman caught in adultery. But under the Roman occupation, the Jews were not allowed to carry out the death penalty, even for their own laws, right? And adultery was not a capital crime under Roman law. So even if Jesus said that she should be stoned, which was their question to him, she would not have been unless a mob had gotten frenzied up into taking illegal action, as they did during the stoning of St. Stephen. Now, perhaps they were working themselves up to that point at the end of our gospel passages, we'll see. Now, the telling of this story is also our first direct tie to Jesus' passion and crucifixion today, since we know that these facts about the way Jewish law worked under the Roman occupation are extremely relevant to the events of Jesus' trial and crucifixion that are quickly approaching. And it is our first tie to the cross today. Since the Jews could not have Jesus killed for blasphemy, but only by accusing him of something that would get him capital punishment under Roman law. That was him being the king of the Jews, usurping the rightful authority of the Romans to install and de depose the Jewish king. But there's yet, more, uh, there's yet one more reason for skepticism about this whole tale that's coming on, and one more connection to Jesus' passion in this story. Jewish law in Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7, requires at least two witnesses for someone to be accused of a crime, especially a capital crime. And you may recall that they had a hard time finding any in the case of Jesus. And they had to find two men willing to lie, that is to bear false witness in the literal sense. That's what false witness means in the Ten Commandments, to witness to a court of something that somebody is going to be condemned for. And this is, of course, specifically condemned by the Ten Commandments. So here Jesus is calling for those witnesses when he says, let the person without sin cast the first stone. And the reason he's saying it that way 
is that according to those same verses in Deuteronomy, those who are the accusers are to be the, quote, first upon those convicted, followed then by, quote, the hands of all the people. And as you can imagine, therefore bearing false witness and getting found out that you've done this is also a capital crime under Jewish law because somebody could get killed. And so Jesus has turned the tables on them, asking the one who is without sin to cast the first stone. So while the question is, seems general, it's actually quite specific here. He's calling out the fact that the folks who are bringing this woman to them are false witnesses, that they didn't actually see what happened. And therefore, they have committed the sin of false witness. And if they cast the first stone, they are convicting themselves. You can see in the account that there's this curious moment that occurs in the middle of the episode where Jesus bends down and it says he writes with his finger on the ground. And as you can imagine, there's enormous speculation about what he wrote. And John didn't choose to tell us. But I believe the strongest argument is that Jesus is writing the Ten Commandments. Why? Because when the Ten Commandments were put on the stones on Mount Sinai, that's the only other time we hear in the Bible that God wrote with his finger. And as you recall, there were two tablets. And if you read the story, you'll see that Jesus bends down, writes on the ground, he stands and then asks, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So that first bending down, he's writing the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. He stands up and says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down and writes the second tablet. That tablet, of course, is the one that contains the false witness commandment. And at that point, the men began to walk away one by one until all but Jesus and the woman are gone. Thus, there are no witnesses. So by Jewish law, Jesus himself, even if he knows what she did, and even if she did it, and of course he knows which way it really turned, was what was really true, and even though he can indeed bear true witness of her sin if it were committed, he could not by himself do anything. So for those who think that Jesus is showing unusual mercy here, he isn't. He's just ex extremely shrewd. He knows the hearts of those trying to trap him. And he perfectly followed Jewish law and, for, and Roman law, for that matter, in this case, and acknowledged her sin and told her to do it no more. And in this story, there are two other key aspects that are striking connections to today's specific gospel. If Jesus is indeed writing the Ten Commandments, He's claiming his divinity, right? Perhaps more subtly than he will in just a moment. And ironically, what did the Jews do when he really makes it plain and clear? He's done it several times as in the course of this passage, as you'll see. Before Abraham was, I am, which is a very strong claim of divinity, as we'll talk about. What did they do then? They pick up stones to kill him. So obviously, they didn't really care about Jesus's opinion when they were asking whether, he, that, whether they should stone the woman caught in adultery, Right? But there's several more paragraphs between this episode that started off Jesus' day rather rough at the temple and the one we had appointed as our gospel today that ended this chapter. And these also are remarkably connected to Jesus' passion in so many ways and continue the thematic elements we've just been discussing, which I think strengthens the exegesis of this passage of the woman caught in adultery. Because following the episode 
where the woman was caught in adultery and, and he says, you know, you know, sin no more. Jesus then says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But then the Pharisees, continuing the theme of false witness, say, so you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me to witnesses. At this point, Jesus reminds them that in Jewish law, the testimony of two people is true. That's one of the ways they put it. Two people say it happened. It happened. And then he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And then they ask, who, where is your Father? And Jesus replies, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. It says, John says that they want to arrest him, because this is again a claim of divinity, right? But St. John says no one did, because his hour had not yet come. Now, Jesus continues in this way from verse 21 to 37, making additional statements and claims of divinity that I will not, for the sake of time, expand upon today. Again, I hope you'll read through this later. But some examples are he claims the authority to forgive sins. He talks about what he's seen with his father, for example. And it is here that the story in our gospel passage is starting to take shape. When he says in verse 39, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answer, Abraham is our father. Jesus explains if that were true, they'd be doing the works Abraham did, which we know Abraham did by faith in God, right? And not trying to kill him for saying the truth he heard from God. Then they say they have God as their father. And here Jesus says that instead their father is the devil, who is a liar by nature. And then brings it back to where we, we started as our gospel took shape. Which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, where are your two witnesses that I'm a sinner? That's what Jesus is saying to them. And none of them do this. Um, and none of them are, I'm sorry, none of them are, because as Jesus says, they are the children of the devil. And in fact, you're only false witnesses as they continue to accuse him. And just as we'll see in his trials and crucifixion, by not knowing God, they cannot hear the truth of what Jesus is saying. For example, Jesus says in, this, in these passages, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So instead of listening, they continue not to be open to God, but to continue to accuse him of bearing false witness about himself and blasphemy by claiming he is God yet again. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is a strong claim of divinity. Not only is the way Jesus able to have been before Abraham would have been to be God. But Jesus doesn't say, I was. He, he says, I am, which is the divine name that God told Moses was his name in the burning bush, reflecting God's self-existence. So now they pick up stones to throw. But here again, all they do is pick them up. They don't execute their plan or him, at least in part because Jesus hid himself. However, a notable aspect returning to our false witnesses is that today's exchange 
occurs between Jesus and it says people who believed in him. We see that if we look back at verse 30. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and had never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Those who believe in him, the, the, our entire gospel passage today was addressed to them. Those who believe in him are not willing to accept his truth and trust in him, but rather will bear false witness to who he is by killing him for crimes he did not commit. And here we learn that this is all about us. And we can also see connections to my message two weeks ago when we talked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I'll remind you is obstinance, that obstinance that we saw in the Pharisees two weeks ago, the obstinance to, to doubt that what one is seeing is from God, to be open to God's work in them and around them. And despite the fact that not only did, and, and this despite the fact that the Pharisees really do know the commandments of God well and follow them. And today it's the obstinance of the Pharisees who despite coming to believe in him by what he is saying are still not ready to be changed by it. Yes, they were now starting to hear the word of God, but they're still unwilling to keep it. So today's message for us is again to wake up. Lent is almost over. Even if you're making good progress, I know you still have work to become more Christ-like. So how will you achieve it? Of course, continue, continue your struggle to succeed in virtue, fasting, prayer, and love of neighbor. I also ask you to resolve now to come to as many of the services of Holy Week as you can, as they will continue these key themes that we have experienced today. But the good news is that the victory of the cross is coming, whether we're ready for it or not. But the problem is that we must bear the cross before we can be victorious with Christ. So I ask you to ponder right now and in the coming week how you will be more open to what God is trying to tell you. When you hear God's word, how will you better keep it? How will you be transformed? How will you break your habit of denying Christ? How will you not pick up stones and maybe even throw them at him? During Holy Week, will you be found among those yelling, crucify him, as Pilate tries to release him? Will you be running in fear from Golgotha and hiding in the upper room? Or will you be at the foot of the cross, like St. John, our gospel writer today, and his blessed mother? I hope that I find you at that foot of the cross. I hope I find myself there. And as that cross stands veiled today, realize that you can't just look at it. You have to carry it. You have to put it in your heart. As the saints stand veiled, realize that you have to be them. You can't just say you believe this stuff. You have to be transformed as they were. You 
are the images illuminating our church now. We are blessed to know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus kept his word and proved his claims and that, yes, these Pharisees were false witnesses. We can trust in him. He is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. So follow him, and you will have the light of life. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.